This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Doing Translational Research. Um, I'm Chris Wildeman, your host. I'm the director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research. And here with me today is Melissa Ferguson. Um, Melissa is the Senior Associate Dean of Social Sciences here at Cornell um, and also a professor of psychology. Um, she recently was the chair of the psych department here but is now free of that burden. Um, her research examines how people generate spontaneous and rapid interpretations of their social world. I only understood about five of those words with a special focus on how people form and then update their judgments, beliefs, and evaluations of other individuals, groups, events, and ideas. She's also interested in the cognitive processes underlying uh, self-control, prejudice, and political ideologies. So we will break slightly from tradition since all of that was over my head, and okay. you could give me the 90-second version of what things I should think about after reading that. Oh, it's 90-second version. So um, maybe the words that are going to be useful out of that whole mix of words are implicit cognition, so that basically means that we're interested in the stuff in memory that gets activated, but not necessarily stuff that we can report on. So like for a long time, the way that we figured out what people think about stuff is to ask them. So to like, I'd give you like a, a 10 scale, 10 point scale. And I'd say, Chris, how do you feel about this podcast? And you'd say on a scale of one to 10, it's amazing. It's at 10. And I'd say, huh, that's that's interesting, but I wonder really what types of mental content are, are coming up when I ask you that question. And so um, that becomes, like, especially, I think, important when we're asking about topics that are, like, sensitive or that people may not have conscious access to. So that can be stuff about self-control. It can be stuff about prejudice. It can be um, stuff that just someone is has trouble um thinking about or doesn't want to tell the person about. So we use a whole bunch of measures that are implicit. They're called implicit. And it's and it's about measuring that mental content that someone doesn't have to report on, but that we can get to through kind of like these indirect computer-based means usually. Okay. And how, can you, can you tell me a little bit about sort of the populations you work with <laughs> or a little what these sort of computer... I assume it's like an experimental intervention, but can you unpack it a little bit? Yeah, so we, I mean, we work a lot with college students, but not only with college students. So we also work with um, Amazon Mechanical Turk, which I'm sure you've heard of. And so that has, that actually has a much more representative sample of, of um, people across the country and across the world. Um, we also have started to work with high school students, so this is part of um, a new collaboration that we have going that I can talk more about, but this is, these are high school students that are in underserved areas across the country. They're part of this organization called One Goal, um, and so we, so we do like go outside of the typical kind of sample that psycho experimental psychologists look at, which is like college students and 
M-Turkers, they're usually called. <laughs> okay. And what have been what have been some of the things that have been interesting about moving to the high school students or what have been some of the challenges? So we moved to the high school students because we started this project on self-control where we were interested in figuring out what explains whether someone persists at something that's really difficult. So it could be like staying fit and healthy. It could be trying to avoid something that is harmful. It could be trying to persist in a school setting, for example. So we started looking at this and we started using these implicit measures, and I can talk a little bit more about what those are, to figure out uh, how students uh, feel about school. And this was a way to see if we could, we could figure out what predicts whether a student will persist and end up getting these... Um, these like outcomes that we would care about, like a high GPA. And so the standard way to figure that out, like I mentioned, is that like we'd have a bunch of students and we'd ask them all, how important is it to you to, pers- to do well at school or to get good grades? And, um, and that, that type of question has been used in a lot of this work. So instead of doing that, we used um, what's called an IAT, which is an implicit association test. So that's a computer-based measure um, that uses people's uh, response times in mm. responding to things that come up on the screen. And it's sort of complicated, but it, it, it's, um, it's measuring kind of the connection, the strength of connection in someone's mind or memory between two concepts. And so what we were interested in looking at is how strongly associated the concept of school is with the concept of important. And so we use this implicit test to measure, it's, we've been calling it an implicit belief about the importance of school. And so we found in this work that um, this measure like really nicely predicted these outcomes like GPA um, and different kinds of like study behaviors, and it did so uniquely and a lot of the other explicit measures that we used didn't predict it at all. Hmm. And so that was really interesting to us for a couple of reasons. One is that um, why didn't the standard way of measuring this kind of thing work? Like why didn't how much someone said that they cared about school predict actually how well they did and how much they persisted? And one easy answer could be that just when particularly Cornell students, so we started this with Cornell students, when they're asked, like, how much do you care about school? They're all <laughs> clustering up here. Not the at all. End, <laughs> yeah, no, the high end of the scale, they're all super motivated and, and high achievement focused and stuff. Um, so, But it wasn't like there was no variability. There was still variability. So that didn't completely explain why that didn't work. Another possibility is that... Um, they may not be accessing the right information that actually influences whether they persist when they get to, like, a roadblock. Like, you know, they're at the library, and they know they have more studying to do, but their friend texts them, and it's like, can you come to the party? And, like, what predicts whether they stay at the library and continue working versus, like, um, fall prey to, to a social distraction? So we think that when someone is asked in this type of self-report way, like how much you care about school, they may be thinking about lots of things like aspirationally, I really want to be caring more about school, but not really getting at the stuff that actually predicts in that moment of temptation whether they persist. 
So it seemed like maybe what some of that implicit, implicit measure might be doing is capturing that mental content that really predicts whether they can say no to the temptation. And so we were, um, we were interested in following up on this in a number of ways. And around the time that we were doing a bunch of follow-up work, um, and I should say, I'll stop and say that uh, my collaborator on this is a, a former Cornell graduate student, Clayton Kreitzer, and he's now a <clears throat> professor at the University of California at Berkeley in the Haas Business School. So, and he is the lead on this paper that uh, was out in 2016. And he makes more money than all of us combined yes, since he's in a business right. school. Yes, and he's a nicer <clears throat> person. <laughs> that's a low bar. Well, then you. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. Um, so... We Around the time that we were trying to figure all of this out, uh, someone from this organization called One Goal contacted me and was really interested in this work because their whole um, objective, this is a national, it's an amazing national organization. Their whole objective, the One Goal stands for getting high school students who are in these really underserved communities to college. And so it's a three-year program. They start in the junior year of high school and work really intensively with these high school students. And then, you know, they follow them up, uh, ideally, until the first year in college. And these are students who are, um, they're not the high, the most high-achieving students because those students are probably taken care of with other types of fellowships and, and um, scholarships and so on. So they deal with students who you know, are doing well, but are still struggling somewhat. And so they were intrigued by the idea of maybe there's another kind of predictor that we could use this tool, this implicit measure that would give us a better sense of like, which are the students who seem like they might end up doing well. It maybe it could be used as a kind of a program evaluation tool, like which, which aspects of the program seem effective because they maybe because they move students' implicit beliefs about the importance of school around. So we, um, we've started a collaboration with them, and it's just in the beginning, very beginning stages, but we're uh, working with them to figure out what this implicit measure can do and what it says about this very different population than Cornell students. Yeah. So um, a big question is, does it work the same way? And, you know, if not, what, how, does it, how does it work? Cool. Yeah. So I have, cool. <laughs> I have. I mean, I'm I have, interested in. It. <laughs> so I have. I have kind of a different follow-up question that I would ask most folks. So, um, so you alluded to this earlier, but in an experimental experimental psych, really, sort of the the traditional measure or the traditional mechanism for doing the research is working with undergraduate students, having most of the experiments beyond them, and it sounds like that's what you pursued until you were further along in your career. So you're full now. Um, and I guess it would just, (laughs) it would just be, no, that's what, that's when you have it in down chair. That's when you become full of it. But the, um, I guess it would just be, I'd be interested to hear sort of how you talk to graduate students about sort of the practicalities of doing, research with sort of a broader group of community partners or um, like the high school students you're working with, how you think junior faculty or postdocs should do that. I mean, I guess this seems like a teachable moment for people in a way that some of our podcasts maybe aren't. 
I think that's a really great question and it's a really difficult one because I think the answer is not going to be encouraging <laughs> because <clears throat> because what has happened in like the last um, five years or so is that psychology and a lot of other sciences have realized that uh, we need to work harder at making things replicable and in experimental psychology part of that has been having bigger sample sizes and so Whereas I would say like five years ago, um, a lot of, a lot of psychology, I'll just speak for people in my area. So social psychologists might use college students and they'd run, you know, hundreds of students, let's say maybe 200 students. And these would be students who'd be coming into a lab somewhere in a psych building on campus. Now with psychologists increasingly using Mechanical Turk, and needing much larger larger sample sizes, you know. So sometimes it's common in my area that we'll have 500 to 800 people per condition. That's not even per study. Um, and so that makes it that makes it actually really challenging to be able to find a specific community uh, and be able to really labor intensive to be able to go out and run that number of that number of participants. So there's that kind of barrier. But that said, at the same time, I think in addition to all of the growing concern and awareness about issues of replicability, grad students for sure and a lot of faculty are really starting to like get it <laughs> that we can't rely on these, you know, these weird, as they've been called, samples. You heard the weird acronym which is like Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic samples. <laughs> I have never heard that yeah, it's before. Great, it's a great <laughs> okay. um, and And it's true. And so I think uh, there's, a, there's a lot of recognition now that even though there are these barriers, so needing large sample sizes for, for some kinds of research, that like we have to work harder at thinking about generalizability and working with you know, different communities in a particular culture, but also thinking about cross-cultural opportunities. Um, I've, I've done some of that because I happened to um, start working with this collaborator a while ago when I was in grad school, Ron Hassin, and, um, and he's, he's Israeli. And so we've, we started collecting a bunch of work, both in Israel uh, and here in the States. And then we've also worked with over there in his lab with uh, Palestinian students. And so, you know, we've, we've been aware of it and to the extent that we've been able to do things like that, we've, we've tried to. Here at Cornell, um, the graduate students in the, the psychology program and the faculty have talked a lot about getting outside of the Cornell campus and, and into the communities around here and, and trying to figure out ways to, to, to collect data. Interesting. So we're, we're trying. Yeah. So why, I, I guess it sounds like you're past the point of getting into the high schools. So I guess it, it would be interesting to hear you talk about the process of getting access there and if there are sort of pieces of advice you would have for folks trying to navigate those relationships. Because I, I will say just anecdotally in my failed attempt to do some experimental social psych 
which if you could never read any of the couple papers on that, I would super appreciate it. I'm definitely going to look those up. <laughs> right. So you could shame me. Thank you. But in my, in my failed attempt to do that, one of the things that was just incredibly frustrating was trying to get into schools in a way that you could get a large enough sample size that you could, um, you know, have enough folks in each condition where you could say something with some degree of certainty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it would just be interesting to hear kind of how that process worked. Yeah, that's that's also a great question because I feel like I, I um, just completely lucked out because this person from this organization reached out to me from one goal. And they're, you know, they're, they're this very sophisticated organization where they have they have they're working with high schools across the country in multiple big cities so you know they they already have their stuff together and so for for our team to kind of hook up with them made it just much easier to be able to navigate that and so we did we've only done some initial data collection but uh they were working with these four high schools in Chicago and so there, when you have that kind of organizational structure where there are lots of high schools involved, then it's much easier to get even the kinds of sample sizes that that we typically use for our for our experiments. Um, but you know, as far as how to make that happen, I think one doesn't have to just wait and hope that someone finds their research and reaches out to them. I think it's possible to do be much more proactive about it. And to figure out, like, who is doing interesting work, what are the organizations and people who are out there who are doing some of this kind of work, and, you know, is there a collaboration that would be, like, Mm. mutually beneficial? And so for researchers to think about figuring that stuff out and then contacting them, because I think my guess is that there are probably a lot of organizations that would uh, at least be interested in talking with a psychological scientist or some other social scientist about, you know, what they're doing and what they're trying to do and whether there's any relevant research that could be helpful. Interesting. So it, yeah, that's, I mean, it's super helpful to think about just so, so if there are community partners that already have buy-in from the folks who control access to the population and you can partner with them, then that is an effective way to do something like this. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. I mean, this is only, like, I will just say again that this is, like, a very new collaboration, and so it could be that that's not representative of how things like this usually go. But, yeah, in my experience, it... And also, I will say that as soon as this person contacted me and we looked into their work, we were just blown away. I mean, it made us immediately think, wow, we should be doing something other than our current jobs because this stuff is so clearly impactful um, and important. So we were immediately interested in like, can we do anything that would be helpful because we're interested in it just not even in terms of how it might push our research forward, although of course we're interested in that, but just helping an effort like that and being involved in it is, I think, well, for us is, is really satisfying. Great. Um, that is very translational research, by the way. So oh, this is so good. I did have something to say. Yes, yes. We're not wasting everyone's time, <laughs> or no more than we usually do. Um, so, so let's just two kind of closing questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the first one is, 
if there are sort of two take-home messages you had from your research more broadly, not necessarily from this specific project, what would you what would you want sort of the listeners to get? And then the the second one is if there were one sort of real world kind of policy change mm-hmm. that you feel like you would want your work to prompt, what would that be? I ask both because then you can just pass on one and we can end if you want to. But if you have um, answers to both, that'd be great. Okay. Well, I'll start with the, the first one. I'm not sure about the second one. The, the first one, um, I guess what I would say, what I think, if I, if I had... If, if someone had to walk away with, like, a, a one-minute kind of summary and they would forget everything else, it would probably be about something that we haven't talked about at all. And so that is that I think when people learn about implicit memories or when they hear about them, they're often described as, like, these these mysterious things that are, like, unmovable and unchangeable. And when we get into the realm of thinking about implicit prejudice... I think it's very easy to read the literature and think these things are, like, not changeable. And we're always going to have these implicit, like, hard-to-control negative reactions to, you know, stigmatized groups or, or people who don't look like us or sound like us. And and that, I think, is a that would be a really unfortunate message to walk away with, which is not to say that they're easy to change. But a, the bulk of the work, actually, in, in my lab is about can we change those types of memories and when can we and how durable is the change? And so even with the the work on people's implicit beliefs about the importance of something, whether it's school or something else, we've been thinking about what we want to do ultimately is figure out. So if someone has like, let's say a kind of a weak belief about the importance of school, can we change that? So how do we causally make it stronger and then, hopefully see whether it has the effects that we would expect. But the idea is to think about figuring out how to change these things. And that also that also extends to thinking about implicit prejudice. And so a lot of what we're working on now is figuring out how do these implicit memories that are that might be really well established and complicated, often really complicated when we're talking about lots of experience with another group or another person or whatever, um, can we can we, when are the, when are the, what are the circumstances under which we can actually change these? And we think that there are ways to do it and we're just starting to figure out, you know, what exactly those are. So that, that would be my hope of what someone would remember if they only heard a one minute thing. The policy thing is, um, interesting and I think harder for me to, to think about. So I'll give a more generalized uh, comment on it, which is that a lot of a lot of my work rests on the assumption that we don't always we don't always have access to the mental stuff that actually drives our behavior, or what we say may not match up with that. And so, I think overconfidence in knowing what's going on with our own behavior or thinking that we know what's going on with someone else's behavior based on what they say is like a thing to be wary of. (laughs) And I think that comes out of like, not just the stuff that we're doing, but a lot of experimental social psychology and a lot of other people have talked about overconfidence in general. But for me, it comes down to 
the fact that there can be big differences between what we say we how we say we feel and what we say we're thinking and then the implicit stuff that may be quite different great well um I personally am very happy because after six months of working with you, I now could summarize your research in some way. So, oh, I'd love to hear. It. <laughs> no, 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 we're not. We're not going to do I'm that. Ask you after the no, absolutely not. So, thanks so much. This was fun. Thanks. thanks. Okay. information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.